Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. This week, we also learn about history being made as NASA's Parker Solar Probe was the first spacecraft to touch the sun. This past April, on its eighth flyby, it flew through the sun's upper atmosphere, also known as the corona. For more on how humanity has touched the sun, we'll speak to Justin Casper, Deputy Chief Technology Officer at BWX Technologies and Professor at the University of Michigan. The visible surface of the sun, the thing that's yellow when you look up in the sky, that's at about 6,000 degrees. If you look during a solar eclipse or you go up into space and you look at the sun in x-rays or ultraviolet light, what we see is that's not the actual end of the sun. The sun extends out. It has this million-degree atmosphere we call the solar corona that goes out millions of kilometers into space. And that corona is actually part of the sun. It has a really strong magnetic field. It rotates around as the sun rotates. And it has all sorts of impacts on the rest of the solar system. It produces winds of uh, plasma we call the solar wind that go out and hit all the planets, cause space weather like the, the aurora or those northern lights, reach out into interplanetary space all the way out to the rest of the galaxy where it merges with the interstellar medium. And that helps shield us from radiation from supernovas and black holes. So it's really important that that wind exists. And we've seen indirect evidence of that kind of boundary between the outer atmosphere of the sun, the solar corona, and the solar wind for years. We can look at images during eclipses and see there's this material kind of frozen around the sun as it rotates. And we can send spacecraft into orbit around Earth or or around the, the sun and we see these solar winds, but we've never seen this interface before actually sent a probe into the solar corona. And that's the advance that we're reporting in this uh, recent publication. And tell me a little bit more about the mission specifically, because, you know, when did the Parker solar probe uh, launch? You know, it's been some years now, uh, you know, takes some time to get up there. Obviously, it's done a few different flybys already. And this more recent one happened that we were able to get so close, but this one happened in April. We're just learning about it that's now. Right. The report just came out, but this happened back in April. Yes, that's right. So a couple of things that force us to have to be patient on solar probe. turns out it's really difficult to get close to the sun. So <laughs> Earth is imagine. going around the sun really quickly, and you need to figure out a way to slow down. So solar probe is a small spacecraft. It launched on a really big rocket, and even that wasn't enough. What we did is the orbit is so precise that it flies over the surface of Venus seven different times. So it launched in 2018, in the summer of 2018. And just a few months later, it flew within a few hundred kilometers of the surface of Venus. And what that allowed us to do is a thing we call a gravitational assist. We actually sped Venus up a little bit and Venus slowed the spacecraft down a little bit. And that bent our orbit so we got closer to the sun. The first time we flew past the sun, just a month after that, we got into 35 solar radii away from the sun. For perspective, Earth is 215 solar radii away, so like a seventh of the way. Wow. And over the course of the last three years, we've had a couple more of these encounters with Venus that get us closer and closer. So in April of 2021, we had our first encounter coming into about 15 solar radii. 
And about a day before closest approach on April 28th of 2021, we crossed into the solar atmosphere for the first time for about five hours. So it took a few years before the spacecraft, after it launched, before the spacecraft got close enough to the sun for that to happen. You also mentioned it took a while for us to report the results, and that's because we don't get the data right away. The spacecraft has to get far enough away from the sun that it can deploy a communications antenna and talk to Earth without the antenna getting vaporized. (laughs) Um, And so it can take months for us to get the data down and then make sense of it. And then in this case, write up the results and uh, just this uh, week announce uh, our findings. Well, what you're describing right there leads me into another question. Is there anything special about the solar probe? Was it beefed up in any special ways to withstand the high temperatures once you get up there? Yeah, absolutely. So just to give you some sense of what we're dealing with here at closest approach, the spacecraft is being hit at its front by about five and a half megawatts of sunlight. That is so much light. The sun's about 475 times brighter than it is at Earth that it heats things up to maybe 1500 degrees Celsius or hotter. So the whole front of the spacecraft is glowing red. We have a specialty heat shield in the front. It's made out of a carbon foam and some other really high-temperature, state-of-the-art materials. Behind that heat shield, the rest of the spacecraft is in a pretty nice, benign environment. We're able to use a lot of standard technology for spacecraft. But we had to come up with a, a really advanced heat shield that could survive those temperatures. And then some of the measurements we used for this paper are taken by an instrument called the Solar Probe Cup that actually looks straight at the sun during those encounters, scoops up samples of the sun's atmosphere, And then reads out to us back on Earth how fast things were flowing, what it was made of, the temperature, et cetera. And that's the basis of this report. And it took a lot of work (laughs) to figure out how to get that thing to survive and operate without melting. Yeah, that's amazing. So what's next for the probe? Because there's going to be another flyby, it seems like, in January of 2022. Yeah, that's right. Well, actually, we had a flyby at a, a new closer distance just a few weeks ago. But we're in the same situation right now that we don't have any data yet. We, we got an initial readout from the spacecraft that it survived the encounter. We know we recorded a lot of data, but that won't actually start streaming down for a couple of weeks. So the excitement kind of continues again and again as we get these uh, playbacks of the observations from the earlier encounters. What's really exciting to me is this crossing of the into the sun's atmosphere happened when the spacecraft was about 18 solar radii away from the sun. And our final perihelion, or closest approach to the sun, which will happen in 2025, will be at a distance of 9.8 solar radii, about twice as close. Wow. So if you think about it, right, it's great to dip below this this, uh, surface and enter into the sun's atmosphere for the first time. But knowing that we're going to get twice as close, you know, we're going to have a much better understanding of what's going on when we're not just at the boundary, but like deep halfway into the sun's atmosphere. And, yeah. and now we know that's going to happen, you know, just we have to wait a couple of years as we keep getting closer. But that's going to be really phenomenal to see how things continue to change the closer we get. That's amazing. Great space news, I know, throughout the year and all and just going to keep continuing into next year. Justin Casper, Deputy Chief Technology Officer at BWX Technologies and Professor at University of Michigan. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much. Finally, for this week, there's a secret unit within the Customs and Border Protection's National Targeting Center called the Counter Network Division. This division operates with very few rules, 
and has used various databases at its disposal to investigate Americans. This division still operates today. For more on this division, Operation Whistlepig and the investigation into journalist Ali Watkins will speak to John Winter, investigative correspondent at Yahoo News. We got a hold of the Department of uh, Homeland Security Inspector General report into uh, Jeffrey Rambo, whose name has popped up in the press in the past in connection to his alleged interrogation of Ali Watkins, a journalist now at the New York Times. And based on hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and literally just a bajillion pages of the OIG investigation, um, we have found that there is this counter network division, as you said, that works out of the targeting center and run by Customs and Border Protection that has little, if any, rules and certainly no oversight and regularly just investigates um, journalists, NGO workers, members of Congress government officials from other agencies, all U.S. citizens located in the confines of the United States, and none of them suspected of any crime. Yeah, so... And this is still done to this day. I just want to say this. This is not... This particular operation, sorry to interrupt, um, was launched under the Trump administration, ostensibly uh, started due to a White House tasking related to forced labor, cobalt mining in the Democratic Republic of Congo. And if you think that's a crazy convoluted connection. You are correct. Um, and then led to this widespread, just all resources, all databases probe of pretty much right. anyone that this group, you know, all they needed was a, someone thinking, Oh, Hey, we may want to talk to them. And then there we are. So but this, the same people are running this division right now, despite criminal referrals for prosecution. Um, and this is being continued under the Biden administration. So that's exactly where this story kind of started, right? So uh, they, they wanted Jeffrey Rambo to look into forced labor things. They basically said, you know, identify people that you could possibly talk to with regards to this issue, whether they're journalists, staffer, congressional staffers, whoever it is. But they said the, the line from above was vet everybody who you're going to be talking to. But what did they have at their disposal? All of these databases. Uh, everything. Ter- yeah, Literally everything. <laughs> and, and, and that's what they would do. They'd run the names, you know, identify somebody. Boom, let's run their name through every single different type of database. And this is kind of obviously where it gets very intrusive. So how did uh, Jeffrey Rambo land on Ali Watkins? Um, well, first, I want to say that, and I'm not defending what Jeffrey Rambo did, but I will say it was authorized, approved, ordered, and rewarded internally within CBT. Um, so this is not, you know, a rogue guy going off the grid being like, hey, I'm going to look up journalists. Right. This was what his boss, who is still there, Dan White, despite, again, being referred for multiple counts of criminal prosecution, um, still running the division, still has no rules, still no procedures, and DHS will not give an explanation, and I really feel like they should. But, uh, yeah, so yeah, you're, you're, to, to, basically, your, to, to your point, all the division's assignments were very high level, and they came from the Customs and Border Patrol Commissioner, Secretary of Homeland Security, or the White House. So they were uh, all the orders were coming from the highest levels possible. Right. That's a good point to make. Um, this isn't like some random dude at the border somewhere was like, hey, can you look up something? This is highest levels possible. And those highest levels possible were not political appointees. These were not Trump people. These other than the White House, obviously, but the, the people in place in the chain of command um, at the targeting center at CPB are all still there, uh, still doing the same thing. So I think your initial question was, how did they get on to, to Ali Watkins? Yeah. Um, so initially they thought to 
okay, you know, as you said, uh, let me contact people who would potentially have information on forced labor. So this was to include Martha Mendoza, who has multiple Pulitzers, who's like a real, like famous, well-known, like just awesome reporter at the Associated Press. She's someone who you could see how what they'd want to reach out to her. Okay. But there was this other level of, we want to contact national security reporters who have never reported on forced labor. Ali Watkins told uh, investigators later, like, I don't understand why I had anything to do with forced labor. And she's correct. Um, because they also wanted to push out stories that were not entirely or at all accurate that would overstate U.S. law enforcement capabilities and sort of trick companies like Apple um, who are believed to be using this forced, you know, child labor, basically, uh, cobalt mined in the Democratic uh, Republic of Congo to make things like iPhones and other stuff in China. So he puts, Jeff Rambo puts together, he's put, you know, appointed lead on this project. He comes up with this plan. Allie Watkins is on there. He starts doing database checks of Martha Mendoza. He emails her. She says, I'm in Thailand. He looks, oh, she's in Thailand. That seems right. He runs Allie Watkins through the same databases. He looks at her international travel and sees what he sort of takes as an aha moment that she has been going to Gitmo um, with, and then the two trips sort of sandwiched around that were her flying somewhere with a mysterious older man who was more than 30 years older than her. So Jeff Rambo is like, who is this guy? This guy turns out to be James Wolf, who is then director of security for the Senate intelligence committee. And this kicks off this whole leak investigation inside CBT, but it also leads to Jeff Rambo under an alias, uh, going to meet this reporter, Allie Watkins, and grilling her about her sources and her relationship and her travel and all sorts of other things that a normal person would not have access to relating to her, which obviously spooked her um, right. because, you know, fair. At that bar when he was kind of interrogating her about all this stuff with all these details that he learned from this kind of extreme vetting that he had all his hands on. He was drinking whistle pig old fashions at the time. That's why the the operation yeah, into yeah. this already uh, became known as the Operation Whistle Pig. Uh, just an interesting little side. I always love you know knowing how these operations get their names. But in it, you know, after he was looking in this, he he kind of connected Watkins to James Wolf. He said, "There's something going on here," you know, and it and it started. In it, I don't know if it was just in his head or how how it really kind of fleshed out, but it started becoming more of a leak investigation. He put it together saying. There probably have some relationship. He's head of security here. He's probably leaking information to her as a journalist. And it kind of morphed into this bigger thing. Right. I think it also morphed into this bigger thing a little bit earlier than, um, I don't know, that than earlier reporting about him had, had suggested. Because he emails um, an FBI contact of his who was at the time then doing counterterror stuff at the FBI um, headquarters. And says, before he goes to meet with Allie Watkins, he says, oh, I think I have something in your swim lane. And that's that is a reference to his what he what he later Rambo later told investigators, you know, that he went to the bar to meet Allie Watkins to determine if she was receiving classified information from James Wolfe. Now, you would think that is not the purview of their work, that that does not have anything to do with forced labor. And all of these things on its face seem, you know, totally not connected but that's what you get when you have a division that has no rules. You get people who really thought that for better or worse and largely worse in this case, it, it obviously seems, um, you know, we're doing the right thing, that they were doing everything that their boss told them to do, everything within their authorities, everything was authorized. I mean, this was 
Right. And that's the problem with this, right? Because this is what you get for creating. I mean, it's by design. Um, the people, other people who work at Counter Network Division just straight up told uh, DHS OIG investigators, including Rambo's boss, who said, you know, there are no guidelines. There are no protocols. We make the guidelines. We are the protocols. Uh, we're pushing the limits here. I mean, that's why it was created. Right. So it's a failure of just common sense, um, but certainly is also indictment of the oversight process. And also, frankly, um, in terms of the response or lack of response, we've gotten or the Associated Press has gotten or the Times has gotten because another one of their reporters was also caught up in this. And I've been hearing on the side from other reporters at different agencies who think that they have been ensnared as well. Um, I, I think the lack of response from everyone, from the FBI to DOJ to the White House, um, to DHS to CDP giving a kind of crappy response that had nothing to do with the questions that we asked. Um, the only person that got back to us from any government agency, and believe me, we reached out to pretty much every single one on the planet, uh, was DHS OIG. So um, I don't know. I think a lot of people have a lot of explaining to do. And if right. you can sense my frustration, I'm not totally. really trying to hide it. Um, and yeah. for Jeffrey Rambo, for himself, right, he went through this. They kind of gave him the, that no rules action, just do whatever you need to do. You know, there was a payoff, right? James Wolf was indicted not for leaking any classified information, but for lying to the FBI about his relationship with reporters, a bunch of stuff. So he's kind of vindicated in that. As you mentioned, internally, he was praised for some of that work that he was doing. But Yeah, you know, he's, he's got these crazy awards, but he's been the fall guy for the public, exactly. and I'm not sure that's fair. Yeah, he signed up these non-disclosure agreements, for so for a while he couldn't tell his side of stories uh, of the story. But he did speak to you guys, obviously, for all of this. And, uh, you know, he, he feels like he was thrown under the bus. He still works for CBP, but in, uh, in another thing, and he, he owns a coffee shop down in San Diego. You know, he just feels like he's been kind of given the shorthand with all of it. I think he has, which doesn't really excuse, per se, what, what he's been up to or what he was doing at CND. But he certainly, I mean, there's no way that he was a rogue agent. I mean, you could see these people were smart enough to, you know, put it in an email. You're like, what did you not put in email? Um, because they, they ordered all these emails were uncovered in part of the inspector general report that I obtained. So, I mean, you can see from the very get go, his boss was in the loop. He, Jeffrey Rambo is someone who likes to send a lot of emails. because I've had to pour through all of these emails that were included in the report. And so do his bosses. His bosses like to confirm everything over email as well. And it's back and forth for months and months. Right. And it's like, you know, they, he totally got thrown under the bus because it's like, he was ready to package this up and say, you know, FBI, this is your lane. Whether he got there appropriately in our eyes, appropriately not being, you know, legally, because he was legally, he was fine. Uh, but his boss says, you know what, actually, before you send all that information off to the FBI, we'd like to make sure that uh, Ali Watkins and these other reporters don't have sources at DHS. And, like, that's not okay. Um, <laughs> right. So they ran, you know, yeah. like they ran these reporters, like, contact info through internal DHS employee databases that have no other purpose to be run against, except for if you are looking to match someone's cell phone up with their contact. That's it. Yeah. Full stop. Jonna Winter, investigative correspondent at Yahoo News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. That's it for this weekend. Be sure to check out The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive has been engineered by Tony Sorrentino. 
I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition.